This is Dialogues with Creators, a new podcast where we converse with creators and creative people in the Tennessee Valley, North Georgia region. I'm your host, Barbara Tucker. Welcome to Dialogues with Creators, installment two. Last time we had part one of our conversation with Mr. Jerry Dry, Associate Professor of Communication at Dalton State College and Professional Humorist. In that discussion, we talked about what defines funny and Mr. Dry's career as a humorist, radio personality, speaker, and professor. This time, we'll get into some practical aspects of humor in life. We've been talking about different comedians. Have you met any of these folks face-to-face? I have met a number of funny folks, both writers, comedians, humorists. Actually, I've had a few folks come into my humor communication class, very popular and world-renowned humorist, speaker, and comedian, Karen Mills. She's been to my humor communication class. Moody Malavi, who's an up-and-coming star in comedy, has has come and talked to us. June Klein, who bills herself as the, the southern sassy humorist, you know, motorcycle riding humor. She's very good and she came. So so these people have been very generous to come uh, into my humor communication class and talk about what they do. I think a, a lady you met, Connie Mercer Carey also. You know, it's funny you say, who, who have you met? Who you almost met? Is I almost met Jay Leno. <laughs> I went, Jay Leno was giving a concert in Atlanta and my wife and I went and we stayed in the hotel across the street from the, the concert venue. And so when we checked in, the person behind the counter said, are you going to the Jay Leno concerts? Yeah, that's why we're here. So, well, I hope you enjoy the show. I said, thank you very much. So we uh, we went to the show, spent time checking out the next morning. The person behind there said, did you go to the Jay Leno concert? It was a different person. I said, yes, we enjoyed it very much. Did you, did you do the meet and greet we had with him here in the hotel? And I said, wasn't aware of the meet and greet. Oh, yeah, we he, he met with us and just had a, we had a big time. You know, that would have been information would have been nice to have when you asked me last night if I was going. Because I would have. I would have asked him to come and be in my humor communication <laughs> class, you know. Because uh, he has been through this area. Yes, he has. He for has. cars. For cars. He'll buy cars and motorcycles. So I know he travels I-75. So there's been a lot of those almost met folks. I talked to some folks that were fascinated. I had a nice, long conversation with my Martha Bolton, who wrote for Bob Hope and Phyllis Diller and others, almost went to a school that she was running, but she closed the school down when she heard I was interested in it. There goes the neighborhood. We're not ruining this experience for everybody. I have interviewed some folks for the radio when I was doing radio. Liz Curtis Higgs. Uh I interviewed her. Also, uh, Barbara Johnson. In fact, it's funny. I I think Barbara Johnson's really popular right now, and our audience would really appreciate hearing from her. She's written, she's one with her titles of her books like Get the Hammer, There's a Fly on Granddad's Head or something (laughs) like that. You know, she's just really funny titles of her books that have sold millions of copies. And so I thought, but I didn't know how to, I didn't know who represented her, how to get in touch with her. I knew she lived in a particular town in California. So I just, uh, I just went to, I just got a phone book from that section of California and found a Barbara Johnson. So I just called. She answered the phone. I said, is this Barbara Johnson? Uh, She said, yeah. I said, the Barbara Johnson, <laughs> the writer and humor. She said, that's me. I said, and you answer your own phone? She said, I clean my own toilet, too. <laughs> and so I, she was just so gracious, you know. You know what Deputy Five used to say? The bigger they are, the nicer they are. <laughs> so, you know, what's more important is who has met me. That's the not Who have I met? Who has met me? I had, I was, I had, a, I was part of a, well, I guess we call it a package show. A lot of different people on the, the stage, you know, at different times. 
they were all well known. I wasn't. That's okay. I, I enjoy my team. So I'm back there with some of the well known folks. Uh, there's a young girl that comes by and she's up there. She's just starry eyed and she's getting all their autographs and she comes up to me. And she can't decide whether she wants to ask for my autograph or not because like she has no idea who I am. She knows I'm part of this eclectic group. And says, so Can I have your autograph? I said, Sure. So I, I wrote it, you know, and she said, She looked at it and it was like she was crestfallen. She's like, Who in the world? This is nobody. You know, and it's like someone expected her to erase it. You know, and that's okay. I don't care. I, I have uh, signed autographs for other people. Uh, there, I had a period where uh, everybody thought I looked like Garth Brooks. <laughs> so at the height of his popularity, I was in a Cracker Barrel in Nashville. And the waitresses were all over the corner and kept looking over at our table and talking and whispering. I knew what I knew what was going on. And so in a few minutes, one of them is elected to come over. And she said, excuse me, I don't want to bother you. Are you him? I said, I think you mean, are you he? And yes, I am. Because she didn't say, I am a he, I am a him. And I said, well, of course I am. Of course, I'm here at the crack bar, you know, by myself, you know. <laughs> anyway, she said, well, can I have your autograph? So I'm sure enough. So I, it's, I didn't write Garth Brooks. I wrote like girth books, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> but anyway, so they, they were happy and I got a free meal. So life was good. Okay. <laughs> There's so many directions I could go with this, and I'm, I'm always fascinated by your career in radio, and the radio industry has changed some. Indeed. I think that a lot of what you did in radio probably informs your teaching, <laughs> and I've also, I've also been very amused by your stories from your radio career, especially the, the one about the the parade and <laughs> with the, uh, the uh, yeah. little apostles in it, and so I'm going to let you share some of your favorite radio radio days. stories. Yeah. Well, of course, keep in mind, I was there, you know, when, with Guglielmo Marconi. We were buddies. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I One of the things I hear all the time is that radio's dead. Nobody listens to the radio anymore. I wonder why they even put them in the cars, you know, anymore, because nobody's listening to the radio. And it's really not borne out by the facts. Now, the radio audience, just like the television audience, is more fragmented than it has ever, because there are more options. You know, when we were kids, there were three channels, or three and a half. You had ABC, NBC, CBS, and if you happen to have an affiliate anywhere near you, you could get those three stations. And if there was a PBS station, you could get a snowy version of that. The radio is still a multi-billion dollar industry in, in this country alone. Uh, e terrestrial radio, not counting satellite radio, multi-billion dollar industry. Then when you add satellite radio, isn't it fascinating that some of the same people who say radio is dead would say, by the way, be sure to listen to my podcast. And this is this is radio right here. What we're doing right now is radio, in, in essence. But yeah, I loved radio. I worked for a lot of different stations. And I, I guess I'll have to tell the story that you alluded to. Um, yeah, we used to do a lot of parades at the station that I worked at. You know, so we and, and I mean, when I say do them, I mean, we go and from the very beginning of the parade till the end for three hours, we carried it live and we would comment on it. We would, of course, stick the microphone out when the band would come by. And of course, that's usually when they went from playing some song to doing cadence with a stick. Do, 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 you know, come on, man. We're just playing a beautiful song and now you're just hitting the stick. But anyway, 
Usually we send out somebody, an air personality, but for some reason, this day we sent a salesperson to do the commentary. And he was a delightful human being, but he was as country as cornbread. And he could mangle the English language. He would make Mrs. Malaprop proud. And then I, I hear him say, now, I remember it was the Tater Town Parade. They had a tater festival every year at this place. And he's, he's saying, now, here comes a float. It's the first Baptist church. He said, it's the Twelve Apostles. That hard T there. And he said, I don't know about some of them apostles. They look a little wild to me. He said, wait a minute. Hold the phone, everybody. Right in the middle of them 12 apostles, it's Jesus Christ himself. And I thought, man, they should have made him grand marshal. They shouldn't have just put him in one of the floats. He should be in the car waving at people. You know, and I thought, Jesus Christ himself. And and I thought, wow, George, come on, man. You know, and I thought, next time let's send you know professional out there but he's a super nice guy and uh one of my favorite things uh about radio soon if you ever worked in the old old school mom and pop radio stations in a small town everyone had a had one of these programs at some point in the day where people called in to sell their junk you know because your yard sale of the air you know they had different names uh, shop and swap was one uh, i one of my favorites that i heard was tradio and uh, ours was called auction block and so uh i was I was assigned to do the auction block, and I'm a nine out of ten callers begin with the same word. Do you 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 know what that word is? Yes, the word is yes. You know, use that auction block. You're on the air. Yes, nine out of ten. The tenth person would say, "Am I on?" <laughs> I just said you are, and then he would go, "Yes." <laughs> and so I'm, I'm I'm doing the thing one day, and the guy calls in. He says, "Yes." I have for sale a 21-inch RCA color television set. Everything works except the picture and the sound. <laughs> I said, so basically you have a table. What else is there with a the television? I, mean, I don't really understand, you know, unless you're using it to put plants on or something. What That's all there is, is picture and sound. So the, those those kinds of things go. And, of course, when you interview people, you, you never really know. And you, you do your homework. You hope that uh, you will ask questions that will elicit meaningful responses from the guests. I've had I've had guests that you would ask a fairly provocative question. They get yes and no answers, you know. And, well, we've got another hour. Can you give me something? And then I've had others that you ask one question and then, you know, they take up the whole rest of the time. I interviewed Tiny Tim one time, which was fascinating. You remember Tiny Tim? Yes. Was uh, tiptoe through the tulip. It was interesting. This was in Jackson, Tennessee, and he was in town. Too. This was He was well past the height of his popularity, but he was still working. And uh, he's a huge fellow in person, you know. TV, you don't get a sense of, I mean, he's very tall, very broad-shouldered, big guy. He came into my, I had a two-hour radio show, and he was supposed to be on for the whole time. And at the end of the first hour, I kind of ushered him out because he scared me, quite frankly. He was just kind of odd. <laughs> And uh, so, like, there were a couple of things about that that were uh, different. Like, for example, in the in the biographical packet that I'd been sent by the promotional people, said that he did impressions of old school singers like Bing Crosby, Rudy Valley, and others. So I asked him about that. He said, "Oh, I only do that when the spirit of the dead singer wells up within me." Okay, and uh, you're not feeling anything now? Said, no, no. He said, "But I will do." And he had his ukulele with him. <laughs> 
He said, I will do a song in honor of being in Jackson, Tennessee, where I know Casey Jones is from. Remember Casey Jones, the railroad engineer? And there was a song, the theme song for the show, which starred Alan Hale, who was the skipper on Gilligan's Island. Uh, there was a theme song. And so he said, I'd like to do that song in honor of being in Jackson. He said, oh, say, well, great. Go ahead. So he said, Casey Jones. Yada-da-da-da-da. Casey Jones. Yada-da-da-da. And he just, you know, he said the name Casey Jones like nine times. And the rest of it was yada-da-da-da. I thought, you don't even know the words. Why did you even bring it up? Why are you saying, I would like to, I'd like to do a number. Now, I can't because I don't know it. So anyway, so at the end of the first hour of, you know, talking about that, and he was talking about a movie he had just done where he played this insane clown killing people. I said, you know, I, I know you have to go now. <laughs> so I said, so I kind of, I kind of ushered him out of the studio and I did the next hour and people calling in. I'm sorry for you, Jerry. <laughs> it's okay. I'll be all right. Oh my word. Uh, yes. I remember his first appearance on laugh-in back mm -hmm. in the late sixties sure. and, and Dick Martin's response to him and how bizarre that fellow was. And so apparently he didn't get any but less bizarre. But you know, bizarre. in fairness, he was a huge star in the 60s for a little while mm -hmm. because he was different, because he was just something, you know, and he was on The Tonight Show. In fact, he got married on The Tonight yes, Show to Miss Vicky. It was on my birthday, yeah. actually. Did you know that people, so many people tried to get to the studio that traffic in Los Angeles was shut down for hours oh when, the night he got married on television. But it was in my little thousand watt day, a daytime AM station a few years later talking about yada da 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 da. <laughs> How the mighty have fallen, huh? Yes, which kind of gets off into a sidetrack of our fascination with celebrity. And all of us love to talk about the famous person we met. And you've obviously met more famous people because of your career. I'd like to change a little bit. The thesis of this podcast is it is about creativity. And so of this one is humor is a form of creativity which I don't think most people think about. They just think funny is funny and they don't really see the creative process and humor and the the structure of humor and how it draws from nature and, and mostly experience and that kind of thing. So your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, because people, they, well, there's nothing to it. It's easy. Oh, it's, my a, word. it's an easy art form, if you will. So in my humor communication class, one of the things I have to do is I have to write and perform an original joke or other humor piece. I say, I want you to experience the agony and the ecstasy of that experience. I want you to feel the angst of having to create humor for consumption, for public consumption, and then perform it. And I want you to feel how painful that is. <laughs> not, not, obviously, they're not harmed anyway by doing this. You know, I, they don't have to write in the lab. They don't have to do a full comedy routine. They just have to write a funny poem or joke or a story. And then uh, they will come to me and say, this is harder than I thought. You know, we started off this podcast. You were kind of giving an apology in advance saying, what if, if we laugh? You know, I'm sorry kind of thing. You know, don't ever apologize for laughter. <laughs> OK, I was interviewing Cotton Ivy, who was a country humorist. You used to see him on Hee Haw song. And he also was a state legislator in Tennessee. And I was interviewing him on a television program I was doing. And he had an unusual way of talking anyway. Very broad, very country. And he, he said, never suppress laughter because if you suppress laughter, it'll come out at the hips. And I don't even know what that means exactly, but, but uh, I, I get the idea. Don't suppress laughter. I had a gig one time at a hotel. And so then I'm, I'm staying at the hotel and on Saturday morning, I go down to the breakfast buffet because it was a breakfast buffet. <laughs> so I'm down, I'm in line and there's a, a young couple in front of me 
And they look and say, oh, we were at your show last night. I said, okay. Uh, and I wanted to say thank you, but I wanted to wait and see if they were, they were happy about it, you know. <laughs> and so I didn't know whether to say I'm sorry or thank you or what. And then the husband said, uh, oh, yeah, we loved it. My wife here, she couldn't stop laughing. And she was laughing so much and so loud, I told her to stop. I said, have you ever been to a comedy show before? Do you understand what the purpose of this? Don't ever, oh, ever. In fact, next time I'm, uh, next time I'm appearing, you know, send her, but you stay home, you know. <laughs> don't, no, of course you're supposed to laugh. Laughter's a good thing. Don't suppress it. It'll come out at the hips, whatever that means. And that leads into my next question. Although... The reason I said if we laugh, it's because I'm nervous about this first podcast. <laughs> well, you're doing you're doing a wonderful job. <laughs> so I'll just laugh all over the place, and I don't laugh; I cackle. Well, that's good. I mean, I'm collecting laughs, and by that I mean I'm collecting people who have great laughs because I'm going to do a show, and we got all these people that over the years I've discovered have great loud laughs, and I'm put them all in one room together and see what happens. Okay. Well, I, I cackle so. And I'm not particularly proud of it, but it, it just it feels good when you do sure. it. Which brings me to the next area. And I know you've done work in health and humor and communication. So could you share some of your findings there? Well, Chris, there has been over the last 50 or 60 years, a lot of research on humor and its connection to health. And, make, you know, everybody knows the story of Norman Cousins, who had ankylosing spondylitis and humor helped him have pain relief and all of that and lived for 30 years when they thought he was going to be dead in a few weeks. And, you know, William Fry was a doctor who studied that. He referred to himself as a gelatologist, someone who studies humor and health. And there are, there are many, many others. But it's only been in really in the last couple of decades, maybe. Where where they've they've started looking at humor and in its relationship between caregivers and patients. I think the single most fascinating thing that I have seen that that has been discovered about it is in relation to patient compliance. Research suggests that. 50% of all patients are non-compliant. That is, they go to a caregiver, the caregiver says, here's my prescription for you, whether it's an actual prescription or just a, you know, you need to eat better, you need to put that up and let it rest, or it's the old Andy Griffith medical advance, soak it, whatever it is, you know. 50% of people will pay good money to go to a doctor or other caregiver and then not do what they say you need to do. I trusted you enough to diagnose what's wrong with me. I guess I don't trust you enough to help fix it. Or it's just, that's too hard to do. I don't want to do it. You know, you told me not to eat bacon. You're obviously not a good doctor. <laughs> but when caregivers use gentle, good-natured, judicious humor with their patients, compliance rises exponentially. And and part of that, there's a couple of things that I think that are happening. One is there's a great uh, power distance between, say, a physician and a patient. You know, we put them on a pedestal. You know, they, they talk about the God complex. You know, not all doctors feel like they're God. Some of them think they would have to come down for the... No, I can't. <laughs> and doctors, you know, thank goodness we have doctors who've studied medicine. And by the way, they have studied medicine. So it, that's that's why I find it odd that we would not take their advice since they have studied it for years and practiced it for years. But there's a power distance. You know, they have all this education, experience, expertise. I'm just a guy off the street, you know. 
that that power distance is sort of reduced and now we see them as human because it, and we also see that they care about me not just as I'm not just a number I'm not just a body who comes in I'm not just a, a medical fee that they're interested in getting to pay for a, a boat or something they really do care about me as a, as a person and so I think caregivers would be wise when they're reading their medical journals also to read about how to use good natured gentle humor with their patients because it would actually be a boon and a boost to the health care of the patient if they're become compliant and if they are willing to listen to the advice of the doctor more. That's very interesting. I, I can think of a few years ago, I, I had the flu or I thought I did. And I went to a, my doctor and I had to see the nurse practitioner and she wanted to get into a discussion of politics with me. And I thought that was so incredibly in, inappropriate at the time. Interesting. <laughs> and my own doctor, who I had hoped to see that day, is so personable and he, he knows how to do that. He can be kind of funny, mm -hmm. but in a very subtle and gentle way. And he always gets those awards that they have the best of that they have in Chattanooga. Oh, sure. The, the best of doctor, yeah. you know, uh -huh. and he I understand why, yeah. <laughs> because of his his ability to set you at ease, talk, be uh, just be so warm and and, you know, funny in a, an appropriate way. Yeah, my own doctor, who is wonderful, and I've told him, you can't retire till I die because I'm, you know, I don't like to change doctors. <laughs> and, and I'm very happy with his care. But for the first few years in our relationship, he was, you know, you're, you're very healthy, uh, but you should probably lose a little weight. And I said, well, I, I could lose 175 pounds if I just get rid of my doctor. But uh, so anyway, he, so I didn't lose the weight. You know, I was non-compliant. <laughs> it's not that I didn't try, but I didn't try hard enough or the right way. I didn't try the the right way let's put it that way so so i had gotten up to the heaviest i had ever been and but i had we had built a rapport with each other he could say what he wanted to to me and we kidded with each other some and so one day he said you know jerry if you were alive 100 years ago and at your height and weight they would have put you in the circus <laughs> and i said well what would they call me rotundo the world's most oddly shaped man you know what? I laughed at that. You know, then I went out and I lost 50 pounds because, you know, he was able to get through to me a message. He had to use humor. Now, my wife, it made her mad. <laughs> you know, I said, baby, he didn't mean that to hurt me. He, he was he had tried the direct approach of just say, you need to lose weight. I hadn't done it. And so he thought he would try to make a humorous statement. And it worked. I related to that. It spoke to me. And so I went and lost. Now, I'm getting a few of those back about four T6 of those pounds. No, I'm kidding. not that much. I, I gained about five or 10 pounds back, but um, that's the problem with pounds that leave you. They always come back and bring friends. Yes, they do. Yes. And that we probably could do a whole podcast on the humor and health, the situation. And I, I feel sorry for people who can't really laugh and who can't find humor because I know that that makes their lives really much less healthy and, and happy. And enjoyable. And enjoyable, yeah. <laughs> I know, and then so, there are, I suppose there are, there are a rare breed of folks who can't laugh. I think it's more that some won't laugh more than that they can't laugh. That they think somehow it reduces their intellect or makes them seem less serious to people. Mm -hmm. I don't worry about that. Uh, people will think you're not smart. I don't worry about that because I, I know the research suggests that people with a well-defined sense of humor tend to be highly intellectual. That's not what you think of. When you think of funny people, you think, oh, they're just, you know, too bad they're not smart, too. I remember being part of a church once that was going to get a new pastor. And so the search committee was saying, we, we found a guy we want to present, 
And uh, more than once they said he's very funny, but he's very smart. And every time they said that he was funny, they had to qualify with, but he's very smart. And finally, I said, you know, I have a, I'd like to make a comment. <laughs> you know, I would like to go on record as saying that being funny and smart are not mutually exclusive because, yeah, you can be both. You can't. In fact, research suggests that often people are both. Mm-hmm. We uh, talk together a lot about your other specialty in teaching a scholarship, which is storytelling. And Mm -hmm. you are more of a, you have more of a focus on storytelling in oral form. And and as a fiction writer, I have more of a focus on writing and fiction and storytelling in its written form, which in my experience is quite different (laughs) because most fiction, especially short fiction is, and I think this reminds people of their English literature classes they might've taken in college. Some of those stories are really depressing as far as that's concerned. You know, they're, they, they're, they're interesting stories, but they end. Some of those, some of the humorous stories wind up being depressing too, though. There's Mm -hmm. some of the dark humor stuff. Yeah. So from an oral storytelling standpoint and, Story, storytelling is so important to our lives. I think they're one of, it's one of the things that makes us human. Is what makes a good story from your perspective? Uh, ooh. Um, well, that's such a great question. What makes a good story? I, I, I guess there's an element of writing, even the oral work, but it's a different kind of writing. So when I write a story that I want to tell, even if it's based on something that actually happened or just something I created out of thin air, I'm writing for the the ear. Whereas when you write a novel, you're writing for the eye. You're writing for something to be read, mm-hmm. which is a great skill. And you're great at it. <laughs> I would love you to teach me how to do that sometime. I'm writing, and part of this may go back to some of my radio stuff because when I, I work in radio and television, when I, and I and I when I would produce, whether it's a, a news feature or commercial or whatever, in radio I was writing for the ear. When I was in television, we produced things for the eye, based on the influences of my life and just kind of who I am. Story, even even as a humorist, a lot of my humor is 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 rooted in story. Not all of it, but but a good bit of it. Uh, although I do also tell stories that are not funny. Uh, they may be inspirational, emotional, instructional, whatever. But I think what makes a good story is that someone wants to hear it or read it. You know, mm-hmm. there are a lot of things that, oh, this would be a good story. But by the time the creator, whether it's the writer or the teller, gets through with it, it's not. So what makes a good story is a good storyteller. Mm-hmm. That's the main thing. What makes a good story is a good storyteller that tells a story that somebody wants to hear, that moves them in some way, whether it makes them laugh, cry, learn, etc. So many, so many things we can do with stories and it just makes our lives better. I find that very profound because I, I think that as someone who, who comes from the fiction writing standpoint, I sometimes will help someone else with their writing if they're trying to write a memoir or, or a novel or something. And without, I'll get into the middle of it and I'm sort of like, nobody wants to read this. <laughs> Why would anybody in their world? It's very self-indulgent. I can mm. I can think of some things sure. I've read that were people have given me to say well, what do you, you know can critique this and everything and it's it's so much about the writer it's so much about their journey their internal there's no sense of anybody would want to know about this no reader so I think so I think the idea that that there has to be a focus and this is true of all communication there has to be a sense of audience mm-hmm. you know and that there has to be some. Benefits a bad word, but there has to be some takeaway, some connection with the reader to be a good story. 
and, and there is for every story and that that's well told. Right. Uh, because we as human beings, we have common experiences. So when I tell my story uh, about accidentally running a red light and having to go to court and having the case dismissed, there are people in the audience who had a similar experience and they relate to it. Now, when I tell that story, you don't believe that's how I tell it to an audience. But those elements have to be there. It's what Walt Fisher in his narrative paradigm calls narrative fidelity. If those elements are no longer there or change in some way, the story is no longer true. And it is a true story. But it's also, I can tell it as an entertaining story and it is entertaining and it's all true. But I embellish, by embellishing, I don't, I don't lie. I don't put stuff in there that's not true, but I tell it in such a way that makes it entertaining, engaging, etc. But it's also, if you want to give an example of the difference between justice and mercy, it's a great story for that. And, and so there is an audience. I was reading in, in a speaker's magazine once, uh, there was a point counterpoint, and one of the, there was two professional speakers were debating the question, should a speaker, a professional speaker, write a book? You know, because one of the things that they do, they have back of room sales, merch, if you will. Should a speaker write a book? One of the, the proponents of it said, yes, you could have product to sell that can supplement your speaking income. It also sort of validates you as a topic expert and several other reasons. The other person said that, you know, there's no guarantee anybody will ever buy or read your book. And it's a lot of effort and that you could be working on your speaking. But both of them, I think, missed the point completely. You write a book, you give a speech, you tell a story because you have something to say. This is what you have. To, that's a very personal thing. There is an audience for it. It may not be a huge audience and that's okay. If it is a huge audience and you make a zag billion dollars, that's wonderful. But that's not what it's about. You do it because you have something to say and somebody there's somebody out there who wants and or needs to hear it or read it see it etc and that's very encouraging to me because i can't say that i've been very successful in my fiction writing <laughs> sometimes i, I wonder yeah, what, it, stop you what there. it takes i hate to, to interrupt people you're not allowed to interrupt me on my own podcast well you're, but you're <laughs> well i want to just i want to reframe this before you finish the statement because right. you say not successful you have published you have had published published not self-published now but you have submitted works that you've written to publishers who have published those books. They're in bookstores. They're on. You can buy them online, etc. You and by the way, I don't. I'm not dismissing self-publishing. I didn't mean by that. But but you have gone the conventional route for many of your mm -hmm. works, which is very difficult. More difficult now, perhaps than ever before. Yes, it is. And <laughs> so, yes, you are quite successful. It's. It may be that uh, you have a small audience. It may be that you have a huge audience that just haven't found you yet. That is. So encouraging. <laughs> Thank you. But to but I think everyone who who seriously writes, who wants to write seriously and not just of, oh, I think I'll write a book and and aren't serious about the, the cost and the sacrifice of it, because it is. Sweat equity, as they say. Yes. Um, it has to do it because as you say, they have a message. They have a story to tell that's burning in them and they just have to get it out and they have to perfect it. Not to say that if you build it, they will come. You do have to find an audience sometimes, but you ha you have to keep giving the message out for people to hear it. Yeah. For, you can't just sure. try one time and right. say eh, it isn't going right. to happen. And 
you know. Well, you think of all the artists, whether they're writers, painters, sure. who nobody really knew much about them until after they were gone. Now, we hope that won't be our case. But, yes. but there's always, there's an audience out there mm-hmm. for, was it Moliere who said about writing, first you do it for yourself, then you do it for a few friends, then you do it for money. You know, mm-hmm. of course, I think he was equating it with prostitution, but we don't <laughs> want to make that connection. <laughs> Of course, the classic stories of J.K. Rowling, she had 25 rejections before she finally was published by a company that is has made a fortune off of her, but is not really a big five publishing company, which mm-hmm. was Scholastic. And of course, it's been very good for them, but and for her, of course. But, uh, you know, the fact it's hard to believe that 25 publishers would have rejected Harry Potter when you look, you know, and the rest is history kind of a thing. So, yeah, I think we have to get the right perspective, but we also have to know, and especially listening to you talk, I mean, what you do is difficult and you have worked at it for many years. And it goes back to the the grit book and the thing about you have to do 10,000 hours worth of something to practice before you're really an expert at it. Mm. And a lot of people aren't willing to put in the sweat equity. I heard recently that a publisher said you shouldn't even try to publish until you've written a million words, you know, a fiction. Well, I have to be a man distinct words. Can you use some of the words more than once? Because that's an odd. Yes. And they don't have to be good words either. Okay. But, right. you know, but uh, I have reached that point of, of, of a million words of fiction. So maybe there's some hope for me. OK, I wanted to end this with, with the whole idea of humor in the classroom and humor is teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, what advice, what counsel would you give people who uh, what I call teachers of adult learners? And that could be anybody in college classroom to those in the corporate training, sure. to those in the, a church setting or, or that kind of thing. Sure. And using humor in their communication teaching. Yeah. And thank you for kind of making it inclusive there, because corporate trainers are teachers, clergy are teachers, K-12 folks are teachers, tech school folks, vocational school folks are teachers, college professors are teachers. And I have worked with all of those people and trying to help them to understand how to use humor and story to enhance and enrich their teaching. And my research has been primarily on humor and story as an engagement device for the adult learner. But it also translates, obviously. It's different in how you would use it in, say, a a third grade class. But it is important. There's so many benefits to humor in the classroom. The research shows that if you tie the humor or the story to information you want them to remember, their retention goes up. Now, if it's just, you know, filler, not so much. But if it's tied to that and can help illustrate what the points you're trying to make. And it is an engagement device. You know, you have a long class. You have an hour. I taught a summer class two days a week once five hours, you know, you better be engaging. <laughs> you also better have snacks and lots of breaks. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because that class, I never taught a class. I've done workshops, a, a college class that long. I was really worried about. Got the nicest unsolicited letter from one of the students to my dean at the time. And it was a most beautiful letter about how uh, much she enjoyed the class and what she learned and how the five hours zipped by. And she said the humor and the stories were really beneficial in, in helping him to do that. Uh, so so it is powerful for engagement. And, uh, you know, I think it was Thomas Armstrong in his book, Awakening Genius in the Classroom, who said humor should be viewed as evidence of a different kind of mind at work. And I've certainly been accused of having a different kind of mind. But I, there is there is also a danger. You know, there the humor can be seen as frivolous or trivial. Even when it's not, sometimes it can be misjudged as that. 
Uh, it can be that string of pearls approach that we talk about sometimes where a speaker or a teacher will just, I've got some great stories and jokes. I'm going to put these in there, but we never really accomplish anything or learn anything. But, you know, sometimes you've got something to say, as we were talking about a few moments ago, you want them to listen. And so sometimes you have to get their attention. Sometimes you have to get their attention back. You, you're great at teaching the outlining stuff for in the public speaking class. I'm not. Uh, I do it, but I hate teaching it. I, I realize that because of the technical aspects of some of that, they start to drift. Be honest, sometimes I do, you know. <laughs> uh, and so I have to, I have to bring them back. Have you ever been uh, in a, a lecture hall or someplace where someone is kind of droning on and on? And you sort of start to just sort of fade away. We've all had that experience. I faded away. I almost fell asleep one time during a lecture the other day, and I was giving the lecture. That was the weird thing. But then the speaker will say, well, "Let me tell you a story." Or funny thing happened, you know, bam, we're back. So it is a great tool for engagement, for retention of information, puts it in a perspective that, okay, now that was an abstract concept that now all of a sudden I understand in a concrete way because you got me with a story. It makes it clear to me. I have had the experience. I went through this period where I, I don't like for my students to sit for more than 20, 30 minutes. So I will make them stand up. And in those breaks, I would put on a something mm -hmm. about a minute mm -hmm. long to just break the ice and try to get them to stand up and stretch and do those kinds of things. While it's okay for a break, I realized that there was absolutely no relevance of the cat video to what I was trying to teach, you know, other than I just wanted them to have a mental break. And they came back refreshed and True. able to, to focus and concentrate. So, so it did have a purpose, even though the, the, yeah, the relevance was not there. Anyway, that's another difference between cats and dogs. Have you seen the viral video of the cat jumping out of the burning apartment building? <laughs> it went all around. There's a cat. It's like the ninth floor apartment. And then, of course, people are excited about it, the video because the cat's okay. He, he walks away from it. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's the difference in dogs and cats. Your apartment building's on fire. Your dog is going room to room. Hey, everybody, get up, get out, get to safety. There's a fire mm -hmm. your cat see y'all right <laughs> i want to thank you mr dry who is an associate professor of communication at dalton state college he has been working there since 2009 oh, i've been on staff since 2009 some days i work some days i you know <laughs> I think we could all say that. I often say I'm not sure I teach. I just conduct classes. So he has done a number of things in his life, as he talked about, and he has bachelor's degree in in communication from Murray State mm -hmm. and uh, master of organizational communication in, uh, from also from Murray State. Thank you. And he uh, taught at Clemson University for several years. And the education specialist degree from the University of Georgia. Yes. And so we are glad to have him on our faculty in the Department of Communication. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for our next podcast, which will feature educator and filmmaker, Mr. Ryan Reese. Have a great week. Bye-bye.